So we're, we're starting a, a new series this week um, called David and Jonathan, Best Friends Forever. Um, you know, I, I don't know, I, I began to, uh, I don't know why the Jonathan stuck out to me. Uh, maybe it's because he's a major character in the Bible for many reasons, yet we really don't have a lot of information about him. Uh, just several, just a handful of chapters there in First Samuel really discuss who Jonathan is. Um, but we see a connection between him and David that is, that is so strong that even death can't break it. And so I, as I was thinking about that, I thought how amazing it would be to spend uh, a few weeks examining this friendship and, and how, it would, um, how God could speak to our lives through it. And so we're going to take four weeks looking at this friendship of David and Jonathan um, seeing what God wants to reveal to us about friendship, about himself, sacrifice, commitment, um, and anything in between that's beautifully displayed in this relationship. Uh, you know, today we're going to focus on the friendship foreman. Next week we're going to look at Jonathan as he kind of intervenes in the saving of David. Uh, and then we have this death of Jonathan and the impact it had on David's life. And ultimately, in the fourth week, we're going to look at how the, the covenant made at the very beginning of their friendship lasted true even until um, David's king and, and him ruling. But in order for us to understand their friendship, we have to know the history of them. So if you're familiar with Israel, up until the point that Saul was crowned king, they had always been a theocracy, right? They had always allowed God to be the king of them and not man. And so there was this theocracy, even though everyone around them was a monarchy, that they had a king and the king was, was the one who was in charge. And so Israel was always ruled by what we term as judges, right? We have a whole book dedicated to several judges, um, but they were always ruled by judges. Well, Samuel is the final judge that we ever read about. And there came a point when Samuel was ready to kind of pass on to his children to be the next judge. And when we read in 1 Samuel, we find that they morally weren't able to meet the standards of what it would take to be a judge. And so the people of Israel, the elders, gather together and they say, you know what, we don't want judges anymore. We want a king. Everybody else has a king. We want a king. And in that moment, they transitioned from being a theocracy where God was in charge and a monarchy where man was in charge. And so we, we, we read this, and we, we begin to see this picture painted. Um, and as I was looking at this, I, I was questioning, you know, hey, what's the difference between a judge and a king? Because when we look at it, you know, one of the most popular judges we're familiar with is Samson. Samson seemed to be some kind of judge. But we, I mean, some kind of king. But we find that a judge was a leader who was raised by God for a specific circumstance and that once that was completed, they typically went back to their regular life, right? This happened with Gideon. Gideon and, and they tried to thrust upon Gideon that they wanted him to be the king. And he said, I don't want to be the king. God is the king of these people. And he just stepped in in a circumstance and then he backed out when the time was over. A king, though, is someone who held an office as king. There was a government official. They were the one that was in charge. And then it passed on throughout their lineage, right? And so a judge, it would end after the crisis, and with the king, it would continue on. Uh, judges didn't make government. They just met specific crises, whereas a king was the bureaucracy of the time, and it could be both a blessing and a curse. And so that's the difference. And so the heart of all the judges 
and why Israel went some 400 years in the promised land without a king was because their heart was for God and not for themselves. And so when the people come together and they say, Samuel, we don't even want a judge anymore. Now we want a king. We find that Samuel actually takes kind of offense to it, right? Samuel is offended that they're making this personal thing against him. And Samuel, in prayer with God, has this conversation. And he's kind of venting to God. And so Samuel hears from God as God says, Samuel, them wanting a king is less about you and more about me. And we see this transition from Israel in a place that had always been led by God. Now they have said, we don't want God to be our leader anymore. We want a man to be our leader. And so they went from a theocracy with God in charge to a monarchy. And it was man-led. And so the people, they decided they wanted a man named Saul. And his qualifications were this. He was a farmer, he was good-looking, and he was tall. Right? He had all the physical attributes of what they felt a king should have. But as we see Saul in his reign, we realize he didn't have any of the spiritual attributes that you need to be a king. And though Saul was the king that the people had chosen, God spoke to Samuel and said, I have someone that I want you to anoint to be the king. And so Samuel goes out to find this chosen one that God has appointed to be the next king. And he actually finds a shepherd boy named David. Because David was the king that God wanted. Now in this story, you're going to see a contrast. You're going to see a king, Saul, who the people wanted. And then you're going to see David, this mighty warrior, who God wanted. And you're going to see a difference in their spirituality of how they lead. You know, as, I, as you look at this story and you think, the people wanted one person, God wanted another. There has to be some sort of rivalry in between this. And we find that exactly throughout this whole story that Saul becomes jealous of this David. Uh, he becomes jealous and to the point that he actually tries to kill him. Not only that, he becomes so jealous, he tries to kill one of his best friends, Jonathan, who happens to be his biological son. And I look at this story and I go, man, this has to be weird because Jonathan has to be upset because Jonathan is the next one to take the throne after his father. But this weirdness turns into this beautiful illustration of what friendship is. Jonathan was an elite leader. Jonathan is almost a mythical figure in Jewish history because of the amazing things he did. We find our first encounter of Jonathan when Saul appoints him to be over 1,000 men in his army. Now you may go, that's not a lot. But we realize that Jonathan is in his late teens or maybe his early 20s, but he's a young guy. But he's already proven himself on the battlefield. See, we find that Jonathan develops this plan. When Israel was pinned down by the Philistines, Israel only has 600 troops because the others have ran away. And the Philistines stand out among them, and they have over 30,000 troops. And everyone is scared, and they're hiding. And we find in the midst of all this fear, Jonathan develops a plan. And so Jonathan goes to his armor bearer, and he says, Hey, let's go on a mission. And they find this garrison... Uh, of the Philistines sitting on top of this cliff that's known as Slippery uh, Pointy Rock, which means that it was a very dangerous place. And it's sitting on top of there. And so Jonathan decides he's going to attack this garrison. 
And, and through that, God's going to give them victory. And so Jonathan uh, ta- tackles it. But before he goes, he says to his armor bearer, Come, let us go to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And so Jonathan, by himself with his armor bearer at his side, takes out 20 Philistines. And God does something supernatural through this. As they take off running in fear, God strikes with an earthquake. And we find something similar that we read about with Gideon where they actually become kind of confused to this and they begin to kill each other. And Saul is standing watching all of this unfold and he kind of takes credit for the victory. And so Jonathan, we read about from a historian named Josephus, was a legend among the people and the people viewed him as this hero to the Jewish people. And it's all because Jonathan had faith, which is contrary to his father who screwed up over and over and over again. He led through fear. He led through mockery of God's laws. He was disobedient to the things that God would tell him through prophets like Samuel. He disobeyed everything God told him to do. Even though God would promise him victory, he would follow through with those things. And so we find that he's completely different. And everything wrong about him was right about Jonathan. Saul always shifted the blame to his troops. If he got confronted by Samuel, he would say, it wasn't my ideal to do this, it was their ideal. And so he always shifted the blame. But we find Jonathan always giving credit to those around him. See, Jonathan was everything his father wasn't. And I imagine as the Israelites who began to grow kind of tired of Saul and his kingship, began to look and go, well, we got a guy coming behind him, his son, the next one to take the place. Man, he's going to be good. He's what we wanted in a king. He's heroic. He's submissive to God. He's exactly what we want to take the place of Saul. And so the text we're about to read becomes kind of strange when it seems that the next person in line is everything that the people wanted. If you'll turn with me, we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter number 18. And we'll be in verse number 1, and we'll read through verse number 5. And to give you leading up to this, uh, the chapter before this is a story we're all familiar with. It's when Goliath stands on the battlefield and he begins to mock the people of Israel. And David comes and he's so upset that they would allow Saul to mock God like that, that he's like, you know what, I'll take care of it. And David is just a young boy himself. And this is when David goes out and he slays Goliath. And so we transition from that. So now, verse number one, he's standing in the residence of Saul's place as Saul is about to do some incredible things for David. He's going to give him his daughter to marry. He's going to appoint him to a high position. But we find something unique. First uh, Samuel 18, verse number one. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house talking about David. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was on, uh, that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And so the people began to, be, or began to experience this other heroic figure named David. 
and it was good, and they liked it. And you find kind of the terror that Saul is because it says, and even the servants liked that David was there, right? They were excited that some fresh blood had came in. And I'll be honest, before I ever had the chance to really study who Jonathan was, there was always this assumption to me that he was probably this privileged son of a king who was like, yeah, if you just let me live in the cushiony life of being a prince, David, sure, you can have my responsibility in the future. I don't want it. I just want to live in this moment now. And so I thought he probably doesn't want the responsibility, and he was eager to shift it to David. But we find that Jonathan, he didn't grow up as a royal kid. He didn't grow up as this privileged kid that we assume that he is. Jonathan grew up as a farmer's kid before he was ever the king's son. Jonathan seemingly had everything you would desire to be a king. And yet he meets David, and instantly he knows that being the king was not his calling. And so he begins to strip down and transfers his future to his friend, David. It's an amazing thing that takes place here. When we read it, it's easy to kind of read over it, that he begins to take off all of his stuff and give it. And I imagine that what we see unfold here is probably weird if you were there present for it. But he begins to take off all of his thing. He takes off his robe first, and then he gives his, his gear for battle, and he takes it all, and he begins to transfer it to David. Now, we read in the chapter before, when David comes to battle to take out Goliath, a similar thing happens. Saul sees him. Saul sees that he's so faithful to God that he wants to go to battle. Saul says, let me give you all of my equipment and you wear it. And we find that it doesn't fit David. And David essentially says, it's uncomfortable. I'm not practicing it. I just want to go with my sling and some rocks. It's all I want to go to battle with. And so it's ironic that the son of Saul is now doing the very same thing that his father had just done. But what Jonathan looked at when he walked into the presence of David, was a young shepherd boy who came from a poor family. What Jonathan saw was the future king of Israel who needed to be recognized as such. And so he took off everything that identified him as royalty and said, I'm, I'm not the royal one here. You're the royal one. And he transfers everything over to David. We find later on that Jonathan even says in this covenant with David, he says, I know that my dad is not the one that God wants to be the king. You're the one that God's called. And I will stand by your side to support you through that. See, people looked and they saw a poor shepherd boy. God looked and he saw the future king of Israel. There's a lot of significance to what was taking place. Not only did he shift his royalty to David, but he also had kind of a kindred soul with David. Because both of them were heroic figures. Both of them had did things that not the average human being could do, right? The average little shepherd boy doesn't go out and take out a massive man with just a sling and a rock. It doesn't happen every day. It doesn't happen for some uh, farmer's kid to take on trained Philistine soldiers and knock out their whole garrison and by yourself with just your armor bearer, 20 men. That doesn't happen. And so when they get in the room together, their souls become knitted together. Because God had ordained a friendship that would illustrate a love that he was one day going to show down to his people. So they had passion for God and it made them war heroes. And so when Jonathan sees David for the first time, he says, there's no way this heroic man should be standing here looking like a poor shepherd's boy. He needs to look like the man that I see him as. David may have come to Saul's house, a poor shepherd boy, but he left a royal king. 
And it's incredible to me that God can take two people meeting for the first time and forego such a bond. It's incredible to me. And the value of a good friend cannot be overstated because several studies show that having a good friend in your life not only leads to um, fewer colds, how about that? Fewer colds, and it leads to recovery after illness, but they're just necessary for survival, right? Because there's a health aspect of having someone to communicate with. And Jonathan and David's friendship illustrate the power of a, va- uh, excuse me, uh, illustrate the value of a great friendship in your life. But the uniqueness of the story is that John, uh, Jonathan chooses his friendship over his future. That Jonathan looks at what is lying before him and sees the value in what stands in front of him. Right? That he doesn't take for granted that God places people in our lives to alter the things he has for us in the future. And though his future was destined because of his lineage to be the next king, to grow up in the palace and to have everything that comes with that, he realized that God's plan wasn't that. And that God's plan for Israel meant his discomfort for the rest of his life. And so, as you hear this story, you realize that Jonathan chooses love over comfort. That he places royalty on someone who did not deserve it. That he begins to advocate to his father for David. And ultimately, he dies to secure David's future. I don't know if that sounds familiar, but it reminds me of someone else, right? Because John 14 says, Greater love is no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command, that you love one another. See, for those who have obedience to our Creator, those who have obedience to our Savior, we find friendship with our King. That our hearts are knitted together, and though we deserve no court with the King of Kings, we find that He transfers His royalty to us. Or as John says in Revelation 1, To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, Priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, the world looks at us, and they label us. And they go, it's just a mom, it's just a dad, it's just a, it's just a kid, it's just an employee. And they look at us, and they place labels on us. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus, in his eternal view, looked down at us and said, that's not just a dad, that's a preacher. That's not just a mom, that's a missionary. That's not just the kid, that is someone who's going to change the world. And in that moment, when he saw who we could be, he transferred who he was so that we could become what he destined us to be. See, Jesus looked at us and saw us in the heavenly eyes that he has. And so he decided he's going to step out of his heavenly attire and take on the weight of sin. David's friendship with Jonathan is the picture of a loving Savior who cares so much for us that he imputes his royalty on us by exchanging his throne for our sins. What an amazing picture is that Jesus had such a love for us that he has such a care for us, and that he has such a future designed for us, that he looked down and he said, I can't let them continue the way that they're going. 
It's destructive and it leads to nothing but pity and self-denial. I have to do something. And he interjected himself into humanity so that our future wouldn't be the fantasy that we thought it was going to be. Right? As a kid, we grow up, and I want to be a doctor and a lawyer, and I want to play in the NFL, and I want to play professional this, and we have all these aspirations, and then we hit adulthood. Dropped it. That was almost a mic drop moment, but it wasn't. So we, we have all these aspirations of what we want to be, and then we quickly realize that in adulthood, some of those things are unattainable. Like, I wanted to be in the NBA. And I realized when I started playing high school basketball that ah, that's a long shot, you know. And we begin to realize as we get older that our fantasy futures are really just that, a fantasy. But when we surrender our lives to Christ, we begin to realize that our fantasy future is a fantasy because he has something even greater. Like I would have never envisioned my life the way it is now. And as my life stands today, I couldn't imagine it any other way. That God would bless me with what he has. And when you look in the mirror every morning and you realize what God has given to you, it should be this realization of a love that he has for us. That he chose friendship over our fantasy of a future. That he looked at us and said, I, I know you want those things, but I got something even greater for you. And he began to do a mighty work in each and every one of us because he decided he didn't want us to live where we were. I look at the story of Jonathan and David and I realize that the love of Christ even exceeds what we see as this beautiful picture of love. That he chose love over his own comfort. Christ did that. That he placed royalty on someone who did not deserve it. Christ did that. And that he ultimately died to secure our future. That's what Christ did for us. And His friendship to us is based on a greater love because He laid down His life for us. Willingly laid down His life for us. And that's why I love this friendship of David and Jonathan. It's because Jonathan does the opposite of our own selfish human nature. Jonathan's first recorded words that we read in the Bible says, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. His first words are words of faith. And then we find his very last words that he says to David. Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. And even my father Saul knows that. He lived a life of faith. And their faith is what forged their friendship. And their friendship is what defined their futures. And so the question that I pose out of this friendship and this illustration we read is where have you placed your affection today? Is your hope set in your career? Is your hope set or misplaced in relationships? I want to tell you something that, that placing your hope solely on your future will lead to heartache and emptiness. If Jonathan would have said, I, I don't care what God's destiny is, I, I just want to be the king. That's what I want to be. His life would have been so empty. Yet we see that true satisfaction in life is choosing Christ over our fantasy of a future. Obedience to Him 
over personal aspirations. And we find happiness in Jonathan's life that is hard to understand from our fleshly perspective. He is losing his royal future. His father is trying to kill his best friend. His father is trying to kill him in anger. And they are continuously at war. Yet in the midst of all of these circumstances, we always seemingly find Jonathan happy. Because his happiness was no longer in his future. His happiness was in his creator. If Jonathan's happiness would have been in the king role one day, he would have been a miserable man. He would have chased David. He would have been upset during war. He would have thought everything was out to threaten him. But his happiness was now in his creator. And he knew whatever happened would happen by the hand of the Lord because he allowed it. Happiness is not placed in our futures. It's placed in our creator. And God had an amazing future plan for him. And God has an amazing future plan for you that even in the midst of the most chaotic situation, we know it is right. That it brings happiness and not fear. That it brings hope and not despair. And that it brings satisfaction when nothing can meet that craving. And so today you're, you're presented with this choice that you either choose life and friendship, that you choose this hope that we have in our Creator, or we choose some fantasy of a future that we hope unfolds the way that we have designed it. In order to have the future that God designed, it requires an obedience, an obedience to our Creator, a surrender of everything in our life, not a partial surrender. There's one thing I hope that you gather from this story. It's the sacrificial love that looks beyond comfort through the eyes of love and changes your broken fantasy of a future for an eternal destiny paid for by a loving Savior that looked at you not as a poor shepherd, but as royalty. That God looked down from heaven and saw who you were destined to be. And he said, I can't allow that. So he stripped off everything and came down to you to wrap you in his arms of love and to usher you into a future that he had designed for you. So I urge you today, choose friendship over future. Choose your creator over a fantasy and enjoy hope over despair. Let me pray. God, thank you for who you are. God, that you looked down from heaven and saw us in the state that we were in, the destiny that we were on, and through the eyes of love, you intervene in our world so that we could have a future of happiness, a future of, of hope, but that we could experience a love that we can't even explain. And God, today, as you've gathered us together, Lord, you've imparted your love into each one of our lives. But the expectation in this soul-knitting process is a surrender to you. That we realize that apart from you, we are nothing. That we realize apart from you, we do not experience true happiness and true satisfaction. And God, that apart from you, our future is bleak. And today, God, you've called surrender. Today, God, I lift up each and every person here. Lord, that if they haven't surrendered their life to you, that there would be this transformational process happen in their hearts that they would begin to experience a love that they had shut off for their whole entire life. 
And God, you would begin to interject into them emotions and love and hope and peace that they've never experienced before. God, that they would see the value of true friendship over a fantasy of a future. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to give you that chance if you're here this morning and you go, I don't want to be on this fantasy roller coaster that I've designed for myself, but God, I want you to do something incredible in my life. I want you to transform it, and I want to surrender it. If that's you, I want to give you the opportunity this morning to find a a place to pray here at the altar and allow God to transform your life in in an amazing way.